Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Expanding, expanding reality. reality. I think I might want to worry in a minute. <laughs> I love it. I was just like, hang on. We're just, don't worry about it. It's fine. When do I start to worry? He's not coming back. <laughs> it's this pattern interruption we're huge fans of here, dude. Uh, well, let's just get it going. Heath Cummings, dude. It's so cool to see you, brother. It, this is I've been so excited about speaking with you on the show. You had me on your amazing show, Live This Life podcast. Cannot wait for this. So let's get into it, man. If you don't mind for my uh, audience here, just let let those folks know a little bit about yourself, brother. Oh, where do I start, man? But they, thank you for having me. I'm really excited. And I have to say, you know, for all the listeners out there, I am a regular listener of Expanding Reality myself. When my Spotify stats come out for the year, there's only one other podcast that rates higher than this one. It's Joe Rogan. So, I mean, you're competing with him for second place on my entire roster of the stuff that I listen to. So oh, absolutely love I, everything you, you do. You're bro. number one in my heart. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, um, I guess I'll start with just kind of what brought me to doing what I do. I mean, I, I kind of arrived at this place and stage in my life where, um, I guess I have the most gratitude for being alive where, you know, I was probably at the most opposite point you can be from having gratitude for life. You know, whether it was, it was uh, a resentment for some of the life events that I went through that I, I perceived as negative or like where things weren't working out for me. Like I thought they should like shaking my fist at the sky. Every time I went through a significant challenge, I, I had like a resentment for life at a certain point, you know, I, I I'll dive into a whole bunch of stuff during the episode, but I mean, part of the journey was, was having cancer before I was 30 twice. And I saw all of those things as just this like massive challenge. And it was just everything you can imagine, just all of that angst, all of that negativity, when every one of those things came my way. But in this later part of my journey, I mean, I'm only 42 years old. I, I still have the mind of a 20 year old on top of it all. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I've grown to see everything as just a, a divine set of circumstances, really, that I guess I, I kind of see as part of like a a game almost like, you know, you get XP in a video game and you just keep leveling up. And I see every circumstance, good or bad is as that energy that just adds to that XP. So instead of seeing these things and, and being like, why am I going through this stuff? It's just every single time I transmute that stuff into an enjoyment of my own life, no matter how challenging it might be. And, um, I know it's kind of hard for people to picture, but that's the reason why I do what I do is because I want everybody who isn't already in a frame of thought like that to get there. You know, I want the rest of the human race out there to experience what it really means to live this life. And that's what inspired me to do the podcast and what brings me to doing everything that I do today. Dude, your show is incredible, like absolutely incredible. Uh, you're affable as shit. Uh, everything you talk about, it just speaks to the heart. And just you have such a soulful approach with this that it was it's just captivating. Again, honored that you invited me on. So had to get you, uh, you know, introduced to the audience here because you're like I said, dude, let, let's just talk about your background, if you don't mind. Take us yeah. through. Well, my background, you know, it circles a lot around law enforcement. And I know with people in the spiritual community and people who are, I guess, awakened and stuff, that that kind of takes people back a little bit. And it sometimes can, like, shut people down to, to who you are and what you've got to say, just because people have such 
strong rooted feelings towards stuff like that. But um, I'll say I'm five years retired from it now for a reason. You know, I agree with a lot of people and I was a hellraiser as a kid. Like I was a hellraiser as a teenager. Like the people who saw me in uniform, I started really young. Like I graduated high school six months early, got all my stuff done and, and got, I was kind of, I was kind of like a savant who, knew a lot of stuff. I mean, you'll get that from the podcast. Like I'm going to sponge for information and I can just absorb shit. Just the first time I ever hear it, I can regurgitate it all right back. And people are like, man, how do you know this stuff? You're like a human encyclopedia. So I'd be one of those kids that could screw off all through high school and get you know massively good grades from it. So I got out early and, and just somebody convinced me like, Hey, being a cop would be a great idea for you. You know, you're, you're this protector. You're the guy who protects people from the bullies. You're like the bully of the bully. And I always stood up for people that were the, uh, the underdogs and stuff. And, you know, I, am not going to lie. I, I did, I did have my heart and soul into it because I thought I was getting into this righteous career that was, uh, you know, full of great people who want to make a change. And, and for the most part, I have to say like in the early two thousands, it really was like, I came across a lot of really great people who did have a really good mindset. I feel like that has shifted quite a bit in recent years, which I think is what motivated me to move on. Um, but going through everything that I went through in that career experience, it definitely added to everything that I have now, as far as my point of view and the way that I, I view life and value life, because I saw a lot of life end. you know, I saw a lot of lives ruined. I saw a lot of lives that were in a lot of challenge and because you encounter people at their lowest moments, you know? So throughout that entire journey, it was everything involving that and everything involving my own hardships that just started to make me want to like dive into what the hell are we and what are we doing here? You know, it brought me to places of trying to like dig into spirituality and dig into like, what, what is the point of the human being even being here on this planet? Like it just looks to me at certain points, like we're just here to go through all these challenges, get beat off the rocks to just end up sometimes to people dying young, going through nothing but challenges in their life. And then they, they go to the grave without like any real enjoyment or experience. You know, they work till they're 60 until they're too old, if they can even make it that far. And that just doesn't seem like an appealing existence to me. So you start diving down all the rabbit holes of the stuff that you talk about and the stuff that I talk about and all the people that inspire us along the way. And it's like, that's the shit that makes life really, really interesting. And when you, when you thumb down your nose on that stuff, when you poo poo on it and, and can just kind of say, that's conspiracy theories, that's woo woo, that's whatever else. It's like, well, the alternative is just a really sort of baseless existence that seems boring and non-fulfilling. So, you know, all along that whole road of everything that I saw and went through and trying to figure out what are we all about had just added to more questions, I guess. I never had any real answers. And a lot of us who are in this sort of realm of discovery, you know, we're, we're in that constant mode of, of trying to absorb information constantly. Some of us do it a little too much. You know, we don't, we don't allow that information integration. Like we'll learn something, but we won't actually incorporate it into our lives like we should. Um, but yeah, throughout the course of, of the, the law enforcement career, you know, one unfortunate part of it was um, I had gone through cancer at age 26 and again, at age 29 and 29, the year after that one crested right around 2010, 2011. And it was the year of hurricane Irene came right up the coast and it decimated the area that I live in. I had witnessed four major suicides on the job that year. And all of them were surrounded around this bridge. I've actually been a huge activist on this bridge. That's in Massachusetts called the French King bridge. Um, it is a magnet for people who want to end their lives. And unfortunately, guess who was working a ton of the times that those incidents would happen? And it was 
I, I become a known as like the guy who was the magnet for that kind of stuff. And you start to think about like, why is, why is source putting me in these circumstances constantly? Like how, how come bad can someone's like luck actually be, you know? But like I said, transmuting those, those thoughts and opportunities, I've seen all the challenges that I went through in those circumstances and transmuted it into now that bridge now has suicide barriers and no one's ever going to pass away at that location ever again. And the barriers actually have given the opportunity for anybody going there to seek help rather than jump over a railing that was barely waist high and 120, 130 feet above a river. Um, so I've seen those things like, yeah, it was a challenge, but now it's led to something that is going to be beneficial for, for everybody around. And, um, you know, the, the challenges of the, of the cancer and stuff like that, that led to the first of two really significant dark nights of the soul for me. Um, obviously you stare mortality in the face a couple times, you know, you're especially like, you know, the red blooded cops, you know, these masculine whole, you know, the whole thing. And I was that guy though. Like I was a hundred percent that guy, like I was into boxing. I was into like special weapons training and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was just that type A personality and completely went to the other side of it after some really significant things. I would have probably never ended up in the perspective that I am when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to being the husband and father and, you know, inspiration for other people, I'd never have been there if I didn't go through some of that really nasty stuff. So, you know, as, as much as at the time I'm looking at that one as well, like, man, why these things have to happen to me? It took away my ability to have any more kids. We only have one. That's, that's a hard pill to swallow, you know, but ultimately it led me to be a fantastic father for just one kid and focus everything I had on him and just be grateful for the experience of, of being able to be a father at all. And, um, you know, it, it led to me actually looking at everything and saying, there's gotta be more than this. Like there's gotta be more to everything that I've seen and every other low spot of all these other people that I've been around and, and the stuff that they've dealt with. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's an amazing place when, when you go through all that and you you're able to come out the other side in one piece, first of all, and then you're in a, you're in a place where you start to enjoy your life so much just because you're alive. Like you woke up this morning, your feet hit the ground and you're like, yeah, this is, this is cool. I might be tired. I might be sore. I might have all this stress going on in my life, but man, what's the alternative? It's, it's not being here. It's not having a single thought. It's moving on to whatever this next phase is. And there's just so much to discover and there's so much I want to do. I have just the ADD of life. Like I get out of law enforcement. I'm like, I'm not making enough of a, of a difference in this role. I need to be in the role above this role. So I ran for politics and I ended up becoming essentially the mayor of the town that I lived in. And uh, you know, the, I left the law enforcement job in that town because it was so screwed up. And I'm like, you know what? Screw you guys. I'm going to play a different game and I'm going to end up as the boss. And some people actually said, uh, I'd like to see you try. <laughs> And so it ended up the way that it did. I ended up as the uh, chairman of the board for it's basically a mayoral board. It's not one mayor. It's five people. And I ended up as the top person in that after I, I applied myself to it. So, you know, it, it, I wanted to change the world from so many different ways. And the same year I ran for that political office, I decided it was going to be a great idea to start a podcast at the same time and um, moved in a whole different direction of life. And like I said, things haven't slowed down for me ever since, but um, I just having gone through so many challenges and having, you know, I guess such a serious career at such a young age, I feel like as soon as I was able to leave that role, 
because you're put into such a box when you're there. You have to look a certain way, act a certain way. All the people you're around act a certain way and everything. You have a, a typecast and an expectation of you. And it was, it was a great thing to break away from it. It was a great thing just to grow a beard again, you know, something stupid like that. But, um, it was, it was wonderful to break away from it because I finally felt like I did as the kid that I was when I first put that uniform on and I've kind of like almost rolled back my psyche back to being, I guess, a mature 20 year old, but it was, it was like breaking free almost and spiritually and, and everything else. Like I'm living a more vital, uh, you know, vitalic life than I was even back in my twenties. And, you know, if, if I can inspire anybody to do anything in their life, it's to move in a direction of where it feels like it's resonating deep down inside. And as soon as it doesn't matter what you're doing, if you're a doctor, if you're a police officer, you're anything, you're doing something where you feel like you're stuck in it for life. Cause you spent all this time in school or, or invested all your time in it. It doesn't matter. You only have one life to live. And if it doesn't resonate anymore, figure out what other direction you want to move in and do it. Cause I mean, what's the alternative you skip your entire life to stay somewhere for the sake of safety. Like I want to, I want to do that whole cliche. Like I want to slide in sideways to the grave. I don't want to go in a nice preserved, whatever. I like, I want to go in on fire smoking and sliding sideways. That's how I want to go out. Road hard and put away. It's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love this. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely, man. And again, the reverence that you have for going, and I have such a uh, high reverence for you, my friend, for going into the service. So thank you very much for doing that because that's a, yeah, you, you do get put in danger's way every day. How, how much of a difference between danger and threat would you say there is in that job? I mean, every minute you're there, you're in danger. I mean, I mean, I'm in a small rural area of Massachusetts, so it's not like I was like an inner city. So it's definitely a different ball game here. But the, the difference between what I used to do and what other people might do in certain branches of law enforcement, whatever, you get your backup. You know, this, as soon as they hear that somebody needs a few people, you got five or six cars showing up in this place. You're 15 minutes away from the next car showing up to help you. So it's like you had to be savvy. You had to be on your toes. You had to really be observant. You had to be nice and you had to have charisma with people, too. And if you didn't, you were going to end up getting the worst of people. And it was like I wanted to go home at the end of the night. You know, granted, you had a job to do, but you were always in danger. Like you were in danger if you pull the car over of just getting hit by another car going by. And, you know, as far as the threats go, it's like, I was, I was really good. I studied a lot of weird stuff when I was in that line of work. I studied verbal judo. I studied conflict. I became a conflict resolution instructor, like not just a specialist, but a guy who could teach other people in conflict resolution. Because I, I could talk. I, I remember one time I talked to six foot four, 300 and something pound, just brick house guy who did not want to get into the back of the car if he was drunk driving. It took me a half an hour to talk the guy in, but I'm like, I'm not going to fight this guy. <laughs> like I'm going to apply to his, his decent humanity and please just sit down at some point so we can get this night over with and you can go home. And <laughs> it took a half an hour, but like, that's the, that was the approach I took. So I think that that job can always be what you make it. But you know, again, I, I didn't resonate with it much anymore. And I, I saw a lot of the writing that was on the wall. Like I'd rather, I'd rather not be in a career where I'm going to be associated with people who's, ethics and, and the way that they operate with humanity, their dynamics of how they, they interact with human beings. If they're so far away from, from who I am, if I can't inspire them to change, which I felt like I was kind of hitting my, my pinnacle on how much I was affecting change in that role and saw more and more bad stuff. It was like, yeah, it's time to go. Like my, my effectiveness here is definitely like running out. So, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, between danger and threat, it's like, I think it is what you make it. Like you can be savvy with people. And if you treat people like 
human beings. If you treat them all like it's a reflection of God. And that's, that's kind of what I did. Like, I'm not a very religious guy either. So when I say God, I mean, I kind of, that's the, that's the name we all kind of got used to. Right. Like, but I, I refer like source God or, or just source, but if you look at every single person that you come across, every asshole, every, every good, decent person and every person at the lowest moment. And it's like, you look at them like God and drag, you treat people a hell of a lot differently than you would when you look at them, like they're a threat or they're harmful to you. You know, you can apply to their, their actual decency. You would be shocked at just your everyday interactions. You realize you don't have road rage anymore with people. And I was like the king of that crap deal. I, but you just realize that you just, your interactions with people just completely shift and change. And again, that's just another layer of what adds to the great things that when you look at life overall, you just stop seeing negative because you're just, you're choosing to look out of a different window of the car. You're looking at the, the good view and not the bad view. Yeah. And it's the difference between um, cop or a law enforcement officer and peace officer, which is how yeah. they're sold to us. That's the oath that the law enforcement officers take is to be peace officers. But it feels like somewhere along the line, like you said, you saw the writing on the wall and their, your ability to affect change in that way. And it was probably the bumper I'm talking about here, that there's uh, sort of an apprehension of psychology within the ranks, as you as it were, where they're there seems to be the, a, a big fear narrative. Now I, I understand the difference between like vigilance and like uh, don't slack off and all of that, but a, a literal division of community and police officer, does that make yeah. sense? Like an us versus them type of a thing. Um, Very much. You saw it for what it really was and, and were altruistic throughout your career with it, which is why, again, you get to a certain point and you're just like, okay, I've done, done what I can here. And I didn't know how much threat was positioned in like morning meetings. Like, Oh, you're a threat. Everything's threatening. And uh, you, we got to us versus them uh, versus just what kind of dangers they talked about to be village vigilant, just in an, uh, just every uh, common sense sense of the term. But again, your uh, conflict resolution seems to be like, yeah, that's the way that's a peace officer that, that, seems more apt to the title. Yeah. And that was true to my nature. You know, my, my mom would always tell me, she was like, you were always the type of person that would uh, have people gravitate towards you. And, uh, you know, I, I lost that for a, a short time, you know, cause they break you down just like they do in the military. Like they break you down to your baseline. And, and, you know, I have a great relationship with my father, but when, at young ages, he really wasn't present. And my, my parents were super young when I was born. So my, I think my mom was like 19, my dad was 20. So I had really young parents and, um, getting into that line of work, there was just a lot of real masculine guys there that were just, you know, they had it put together. They had nice houses, nice cars. So I'm just like, wow, like great more role models. You know, I typecasted myself after what I saw in some of these guys. And it was, some of them were just like that, like toxic masculinity, like of the utmost. Um, so it probably wasn't the best role models, but after a while, after I, I hit, hit a couple of speed bumps in that career early on, because I, I can keep my mouth shut, honestly, like it's good that I'm in charge of a lot of stuff because I am not good at buttoning my lip. When I see something that's unethical, I call that shit out right away. And it caused problems for me at like 22 years old. I had to sue upper administration. I had to file lawsuits against them because they were trying to ruin me for coming out against something that was illegal. And there's whistleblower acts. There's all sorts of stuff that protects you. And I won several different times. They were a few years apart, but there were a few times where you do that. And of course I became the black sheep in the middle of it. Like nobody would talk to me, but then after I won and those particular people were forced out of their positions, it was like carrying me on the shoulders and stuff after that, you know? And it was like, those were the beginnings of me breaking away from it already. It was like, if this is how fickle the brotherhood is, like I'm a black sheep until I'm the hero and then I'm back on the shoulders and then it happened again. And it was like, 
yeah, I'm, I'm going to find a way to dip, dodge, duck, dive out of this a little bit. And I kind of got out of, I was still always in law enforcement for all those years. I actually reduced it down to a, a part-time job and I got into art crime investigation and that was actually really cool. You know, it was kind of, it got you more on lone wolf type thing than being part of a team. And uh, that was, that was probably the coolest freaking job ever. Yeah. And like I told you before, it's just, it was part of the the path of my life. Like the podcast, I would have never in a million years told you I was going to do a podcast. It wasn't that kind of guy. And the same thing, like go back five years ago, I hate, I'm like, break politics. I will never, ever be in politics. And then, you know, there it was. So same thing with that art crime stuff. It was just like, I got thrust into this role. And before I knew it, I was digging into old archives and I got into a whole bunch of stuff. And then I became one of the Northeast's top people. I had colleges and all these people hiring me as a consultant to like boost up all their security in their buildings and, you know, make sure that nobody was ever going to get their stuff stolen. And then I became, uh, you know, art theft investigator and worked with the FBI on a really old cold case. And it was, it was a super cool career path. And I saw a lot of really cool shit, but just like, couldn't have told you in a million years when I was a 20 year old kid, that was where I was going to end up. And, uh, but that's how I ended up there. It was just because the, the world of what I was doing in that, that full-time that the law enforcement, the um, police career, just, it wasn't, it wasn't resonating after some of those battles. I'm like, if this is where everybody's mindset is when, you know, you, you get settled into a role somewhere, um, it's not for me, you know, and I actually became known as, uh, as a little bit of like a, a, a cops, a, a cop of the cops. Like I got hired by some uh, other organizations to investigate their own law enforcement personnel because they, they couldn't do it internally. Everybody knew each other. So outside I, guy. yeah, yeah. But they, the thing is, is like even the other guys and agencies elsewhere wouldn't investigate other cops. So that's like what you end up seeing is a lot of cover up for everybody in the brotherhood. I'm like, you're doing wrong. You're doing wrong. I don't give a crap who you are and what you've done. If you're doing something that's morally wrong, like legally wrong, eh, like man-made rules, you know, man-made laws. When it comes to morality, that comes from a little bit more of a spiritual place. Like you realize that, that killing and harming and hurting other people is just a, a wrong thing. You don't need a law to tell you that that's wrong. And some of the stuff I see these guys do, like they knew they were doing some wrong stuff. And to be the guy that was going to maybe stop that stuff from happening, it was kind of, kind of appealing, but it was also super stressful at the same time too. <laughs> Awesome. Not all heroes wear capes. Like you're like Batman, but you know, for an agency, like uh, I, I love that. And uh, you know, I don't wear a cape when uh, yeah, cameras no are on. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> actually now. I'm like, maybe he's got one tucked in behind that collar, um, which would be super cool. Uh, also, speak how you want to speak, dude. If you're self censoring because uh, you're representing yourself that way, awesome. But if you, I don't think we covered it in the pre show, so we'll do it here for everybody else. Uh, you're not censored anyway. Say the, whatever the fuck you want, man. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, your art. Uh, history stuff is very interesting to me. You told me a fun fact about Monet and how you're able to detect the differences. Do you mind sharing that with everybody? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's an exercise in perception that it basically it, it trans is basically a, uh, a metaphor for everything that you end up observing in your life. Because as you learn certain things, you build that XP in your life, you end up never looking at life the same way. I mean, many of us have a completely different view of the world than we did before 2020. I mean, we all know what's happened in the last few years and we just don't see the world the same way. Every, every single thing that happens just adds to a layer of like, we can't see the world. You can't unsee certain things. And when it comes to Monet, you know, of course I'm around all sorts of uh, art, but all these people are, you know, masters and doctorates and stuff like that in, in the art world. And I just took on a lot of stuff by osmosis, but I love impressionists and Monet was like probably one of the most famous impressionist painters in, in history. And 
when he first started out, his pictures were extremely detailed. You know, impressionist paintings are done by a lot of small little dots of color that when you kind of step back, it makes, you know, a beautiful painting, but you can see all the small little pieces of the added color that make it. It's not big paint swaths and, and brush strokes. So when he first started, his paintings were super duper detailed. And as time went on, when you look at Monet's paintings, you'll notice that some are super colored and some of them are kind of gray and washed out. And you notice that some too, they're, they're detailed, but they'll be in this like reddish color um, palette or in a, in a really stark, like green color palette. And when you understand why, like you could look at all those paintings and just be like, wow, he was kind of like, he was really talented. And then he painted some really weird pictures and then he just started getting lazy and just kind of doing purples and grays. Well, when you learn that he had vision problems, that kind of like changes everything. His grayish paintings were because he had cataracts. So when you see those paintings, you see the colors start to fade. He didn't paint what he thought the thing looked like. He painted what he actually saw. So when you start to see the, the colors, like I remember there's one that's of a house and it's like one's really, really red. And it's the same exact painting, but in, in purple, it almost looks like someone just put a different color filter on it. It's not. It's because he had surgery and it actually messed up the way that he saw colors so he would paint the painting and cover one eye and then he would cover the other one and paint the painting again and he would have just two completely different color palettes of the same exact thing so now if you ever go to a monet exhibit and you're looking at all these paintings you're gonna be like that must have been when he was younger that was with the cataracts that was after the messed up surgery when otherwise you would have never you would have never maybe known those things if you didn't know that about him but now you can't unsee that so now whenever you see a monet painting you're gonna be like yeah, I know that that applies to everything in your life. You know, as we're learning these layers of information about whether you, anybody wants to call it conspiracy theory, I can't fucking stand conspiracy theory. I can't stand that word. Analyst, it's just a critical thinking, at least, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. you mean thinking? Just, okay. It just sounds like it's, it, it doesn't sound like it. it is just a dumb way to dismiss things of people's cognitive dissonance that they just literally can't hack. They'll throw that out there as their, you know, their, their little, their little shield of stuff that they can't handle. So you, you know, know why the term conspiracy theorists came about, right? So I know that a lot of stories came about um, because they were trying to make sure that the Warren commission report, you know, it, it stuck. I've seen a lot of different things debunk that, but I don't know if that's from, you know, just mis more misinformation from the official sources, but I know that's supposedly where it started off from, but I've heard alternate stories about it. Yeah. I mean, with the origin of the word conspirator, I mean, it's the same thing. And then you just put theorist with it. And then now you're talking about something that's, um, well, you're uh, conspiring, but uh, it's just a theory. I mean, just like gravity, just like everything else. Okay, cool. Sounds yeah. good, buddy. Uh, it's just an interesting uh, turn of phrase that, uh, the gaslights everybody. So I want to know your thoughts on death and your near death experience. And I'm very curious about why our lives are so consumed with death. It, it feels like death is sort of something that uh, either motivates you or scares the shit out of you. It seems like it's all around you. I mean, we live out here in the country, so we see dead shit all the time. And it's just sort of a way of things. So it's an interesting that it's so... Uh, I don't want to say triggering, but incendiary, uh, but it's so pervasive. You can't have life without it, but it, yet it's so, I, I don't know, people are so adverse to it in, in certain ways. So I'm curious on your thoughts on uh, life, on death, on our lives, and then your near-death experience as well, please. Yeah, I think I think the reason why we are maybe so afraid of it at a certain point is just because the purpose of us being here is to be alive. You know, it's, yeah. it's the opposite side of that polarity. So, I mean, that's like the base level that we end up at. Like we are here and we are alive. I do not want the opposite of that. I want to stay alive and don't want to be dead. 
at a certain point, when, when we start to learn a lot about the universe and that energy cannot be destroyed, it can only be transferred. We start to wonder then, okay, well then the energy that makes up me, my thoughts and all my energy, it's got to go somewhere. And it had to have come from somewhere before I got here. Like that was one of the very first concepts when I sort of went through a second sort of dark night of the soul. And I was really getting into like, I'm leaving this job. I'm leaving police workers back in like 2017. Um, it was one of the very first things when I dove into religion and religion kind of fell apart for me as I dug into it more that that part right there was what really started to make the fear of death fade away. I, I mean, I was at a certain point, I was like a stupid, not afraid of death. Like nothing can kill me a macho kind of bulletproof bullshit. But eventually like I am no longer afraid of death. I just don't want to die. I got so much stuff that I want to do and haven't been able to do on. I, yeah. Like I don't, I, I just, I want to be here. I want to be 150, 200 years old when I die. It's my game plan. So I'm saying it here, but um, I think that, I think that basically our, our fear of death just comes from it being one of those things, the unknown, just the same reason people are afraid of ghosts and aliens and anything else. Like you just don't know what it is, but the more you learn about it and the more you, you talk to people who have been close to it and you talk to, you know, people who, may have been to the other side and had a glimpse or people who have had channeling sessions, who've gotten wisdom from maybe otherworldly things that are in different dimensions and stuff like that. You start to learn like this isn't just, we're not just here in this meat suit for a limited amount of time and end up in the ground and it's over. Like there's something higher and bigger that's going on here. And I think that's what starts to evaporate the fear and the deeper you dig into that. And I think that's what erodes that whole thing away. But yeah, with my two, my two experiences with the cancer, like the first one, it didn't, uh, 26 years old, it, it just like, it came and it went and it was a low grade type thing. I had surgery. I declined chemotherapy and radiation. Um, and I moved it along and I was fine. And then three years later, it was actually a second type. And it, you know, my huge, I have a huge mistrust for the medical community. So you can imagine that what side of the COVID coin I was on when the whole thing went down, I was like, yeah, this is all bullshit. I've seen this before. Um, uh, I had the first of all, the first doctor actually told me I didn't have it. He told me I didn't have cancer. What are you worried about? Like you're all, you got, all you, young guys, you got nothing. And <laughs> then my wife was seven months pregnant. Like again, with our only son. And she's like, you want to miss this opportunity to meet your son? Like, what if you have something and you know, he barely gets a chance to know you. I'm like, yeah, that terrifies the shit out of me. So I, I went through further tests and lo and behold, did have it. The second time, and then after, actually, because I didn't go through chemo and radiation, they were like, well, then you should get CAT scans like every three months. Well, I didn't know that CAT scans give you three years worth of the background radiation that you normally get just being exposed to solar radiation and everything else. Like an x-ray is about 0.3. It's about a third of one year's worth of background radiation. A CAT scan will do three years worth. So these guys were pumping me every three months full of CAT scan radiation. I they mean, actually, they're like, Hey, you don't have cancer. Okay. Well sit in this three times a week yeah. and eventually you will. And then we'll tell you how we can help you maybe. And we'll make you a longer customer within the system. Yeah. So, and here in Western mass medical, the medical community absolutely sucks out here. Uh, luckily I live only two hours away from Boston and one of the best cancer centers in the country, Dana Farber there. I credit them for saving my life. Um, I had somebody who was actually working on my CAT scans was a friend of a friend and pulled me aside. and was like, why are you coming in here so much? And I'm like, cause they told me to. And she's like, they're going to give you cancer. They're going to give you cancer. This is not good. You cannot keep coming here. You need to go get a second opinion, go to Boston. So I did. And they were basically like, 
yeah, dude, you're not getting another CAT scan unless you're like internally bleeding and we can't find out where it's coming from. So, um, I go there and that added to a little bit more of my experience and mortality because here I am 29 year old guy. I, again, I went through the second case and it was a much more serious type of cancer. It was carcinoma and it was, it, it can be really deadly if you don't get it out of you and, and take care of it. But again, learning everything I was learning along the way, I declined chemo and radiation. I'm like, you're nuts. Like you can't, you can't do this. And I'm like, I'm gonna, I know people who have, and I'm gonna, and I went through a lot of really risky health things. I would never advise anybody to do that. So do not take this as medical, medical advice. Cause it was very risky, but you know, that was in, in uh, 2010 and here it is, you know, 2023, I'm, I'm still here and I'm doing great. So, um, but as I was there, I'm this young guy in a room with a lot of people who didn't look like they had much time left, you know, and talking to some of these people, I'm waiting for my appointments and going through my treatments and all that kind of stuff. It, uh, it really, it really struck uh, tough because it's like, you almost get a little bit of survivor remorse. You're there and you know, you go to your next appointment and these people are kind of like, they're at the same appointments all the time. And then eventually you don't see them anymore. And you're like, you know, I hope they're not here because they're, they're here. They're, they are healed, but you don't, you know, a lot of time that didn't happen. And I just saw a lot of that along the way. I just want, I'm going to show up. I'm going to be outside and pick you up for work and you're not going to be here because you moved on and like, you're doing so much better. You know, that's the deal. That's what's the best that can happen. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it just, that, 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 that led to a lot of like the, the mortality setting in, but also like a value for life a lot more. So, you know, it's, it's all been, uh, it's all been a journey. I mean, that's, that's pretty much like the, the gist of, um, how sort of my fear of, of ever dying. I mean, the only thing I really don't, the biggest thing that scares me about death is just leaving behind the people that really depend on me the most. And the other biggest thing is just, this just recently set into, and I just did an episode about this. There's a Tim McGraw song. It's called standing room only. And I just did an episode about just that song. Cause I, I'm listening to this song one night out by the fire, my, my outside, I just had it on repeat. I'm just bawling my eyes out. It's I'm such from, a good song. Uh, River by Garth Brooks. Ooh, get out yeah. of here. That's yeah. fine. Yep. Right. So I, I listened to that episode and I just started just typing away on my laptop while I was out there. And it's just him talking about how at his funeral, he hopes it's just standing room only that he, uh, you know, live a life that's worth forgetting, uh, live a life that's, um, uh, so you won't be forgotten and, you know, live a life that's worth, uh, living and, and so that when you die, they're standing room only at your funeral. And I'm like, that's, that's what it's all about. Like, making an impact enough so that I'm not forgotten what I'm gone. And cause I think that was one of my biggest fears about dying. If, if I would have gone at 26 or 29, people weren't going to remember me for stuff that was very good. I was going through, you know, the, some rough stuff back then, but you know, after that came and went, it was like, wow. And I lost a really good close family friend who was that guy, like this whole County knew this guy, everybody loved him. And his funeral was literally the line went down around the block and you waited three hours just to get into the, to the wake. And I'm like, man, this is, this is my goal is to have people share stories about me. Like they're sharing about him. Like that's, that's how I want to live this life. Like that's what the the kind of impact I want to leave behind when it's all said and done. Damn. Crushing it with this dude. Yeah. Absolutely crushing. Have you, so we have a mutual, we have a few mutual friends here, uh, Ben and of course, Rachel Horton white. Yes. I don't remember how we all got set up here, but I'm grateful that we are. Have you sat down with Rachel and had her go into your Akashic records? Akashic. I haven't. And she's, she's got to come on my show. And and Rachel, if you're listening, that's totally my bad because I've, I've fallen off the guest list. It got bombarded lately. I've been getting tons of emails. So, but she's, 
like second or third down on my list in the next few months. But um, no, I have to have her do that. I'm super excited to do that because I've never had anybody do them. I've, I've gotten a little bit of some spiritual work and Reiki and all that kind of stuff, but I've never had anybody dive into my Kashuk record yet. Her shit is profound. I'm going to give you a pass on this too. This is like the season of reschedules. I've rescheduled a couple. There have been stuff I was, you know, uh, needed a couple extra minutes this evening with you. So it's fine. It's the season of reschedules. We're all doing it. So it's okay. We're kind of passing each other around. It's fine. Um, yeah, I was actually supposed to have Ben Carroll on for like the fourth time on my show. I mean, Ben and I are pretty good friends and he was supposed to be on last night and he had a rescheduling. He got feeling, feeling a little under the weather. So you know, I, I get I, it. I, I had Kathleen Martin coming on on Tuesday, uh, the niece of Betty and Marty Hill. She was going to come on for a second time and uh, she got the SIVO, the COVO. And so yeah. wishing her well on a speedy recovery. So she's rescheduling, but it's just been interesting, man. And so no worries on that. But dude, if I can say, uh, I highly recommend Rachel and dude, yeah. everybody out there, I'm going to, in fact, just link how you can get a hold of her down in the show notes. Make sure that y'all check that out. She has gone through my Akashic records or Kashik, whatever you want. What do you say? Akashic or Akashic? Akashic. Have you heard tomato, that? Specific? Tomato, tomato. That's it. Is it because I'm Texan? Maybe. Okay. The Akashic but, records uh, with Rachel Horton White. And um, it was fascinating and fabulous. And I carry it with me. I mean, there was there were things that she said in there that I was just like, oh my God. And same thing. I'm sitting there bawling. And it's all out there. If you want to sign up to become an expansive insider, you can see Rachel go into my Akashic. Kashik, Kashik records. And uh, we just had an outstanding conversation. So I want to ask, have you had any sightings or anything like that? You rolled out in the hillbilly towns with a badge on, you know, um, in a spotlight. Did you see any UFOs, any cryptids, any freaky woo woo, as we say? So I've got, I've got two decent stories. One of them I actually have on video and I'll have to share that with you privately. It's, it's really hard to see and something pretty crazy happened on that one, but the the very first i mean I was, so yeah i'm trying to there's one of them i can't talk about yet so maybe someday when you and i are in person i can't I, that one i'm i'm still nervous to talk about it, but audience <laughs> on purpose you tell me i would never yep um so no there was there was one i was it was like right after i had uh it was right after 9 11 and we were having to go and check on uh these these reservoirs of drinking water near a major city that's nearby. And it was up in the hill towns where we live. And that's where the reservoirs usually are out here in the sticks. So I'm up there and it's, it's pretty much all uphill and right at the top of the crest of this hill is the turnaround to come back down. And I get to the top of this hill. And as I'm turning around, like say I'm turning, you know, from, from six o'clock up to three and I'm almost up to noon on the turn. And all of a sudden this green light goes streaking across the sky and you could tell it was moving left to right over the, the car because the, the shadows of the trees moved. So as I did that, the car is just cresting 12 heading back toward like 11 o'clock and the car just completely shuts off radios, call everything just dead, no electricity at all. And I am just like, Oh my God. Like what is going like? So nothing was hovering over me, but something definitely like maybe green fireball was coming down. Maybe it caused electrical disturbance. Maybe it was ETs flying over and, you know, taking a drink in the reservoir. I don't know. Never saw a crap, but something was right over me. And, um, I'm sitting there in this car and it's barely moving. Cause we're just, I'm like still trying to go and I'm like rocking it. Like get back down the hill, you know, <laughs> got the thing going and, and put it in neutral and kept trying. All of a sudden, all the electronics came back on after I started rolling a couple hundred yards and 
needless to say, I would put it on that piece of paper. I checked that reservoir from that point on, but I don't think I went back up there after dark. I checked it off early in the day before the sun went down, but yeah, I don't know. To that day, I, I've told a few people about that and they were just kind of like, yeah, that's, that's pretty wild. I've never had anything happen like that before, but I've heard of electrical disturbances when stuff does like fall through the atmosphere. There's different, you know, EMFs that happen from, from different things, but yeah, but they that, were that, that that UFOs too. Yeah. That yeah. was, it was, it was wild. And I, like I said, I was, I was like a 20, 21 year old kid. So, I mean, I mean, now I probably would get out of the car and be like, Hey, get me off this rock. I want to get the hell out of here. And can we stop and pick a few people up along the way? Wanna... That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we got to go zip out to Texas and pick up Brandon and a few other people. Let's get the hell out of here. Thought, dude. Yeah. Come on by. I would love that. Is there any cave systems or anything like that up there by the reservoirs? Cause when you say this, I'm picturing like a super mountainous area and it's like wooded and something um, super picturesque and beautiful. Am I sort of uh, accurate in that assessment? Like, like rolling Hills kind of, you know, yeah. almost like you'd picture in like Virginia and stuff like that. Like definitely like the rolling Hills of Western mass. Cause we're, you know, if you, you know, the Appalachian mountain trail or the Appalachian mountains, we're sort of at the tip of that. It's the Berkshires. It's kind of like the, the top Northern part of where the Appalachian kind of comes to a, to a tip. Um, so the mountains aren't really as big as the Appalachia, but we're at the foothills of the Berkshires in Massachusetts. So it's, the hills start to get pretty decently big. My mountain right behind me happens to be nothing but like granite quartz ripples of just sheer cliff faces and caves and all sorts of crazy stuff up behind our house. We actually own like 14 acres of property up here and it's, I've never even seen half of it. I even it's, it's pretty gnarly stuff, but it's cool. It's all, Whatever all you kinda... want to leave unexplored, dude. I'm really into that shit. So I'll, we'll, we'll come up and uh, explore. You got get out here. Yeah. I to dude. Absolutely have to, um, you know, so what are your, what are your thoughts on the area you live? Do you think that you were called there or do you think that, um, now that you're there, there's some, that's the place where you get to witness some really cool shit, uh, and that you were, like I said, sort of kitsmith, uh, guided there. Do you have any sort of calling to that place? I kind of, I did for a while and I feel like the calling starting to fade. I mean, I, I definitely have like this, this divine conjunction of timing that's coming up in the next couple of years. So I, I have a few different things like my political term is coming to an end and I am not rerunning for politics, at least not in the role that I'm in right now. I'm on my second term and I'm all set. Um, I didn't run council of the galactic command. That's what's up. Sure. I'm good. I'm good with that one. Yeah. (laughs) All right. But, um, no, I mean, I've, I've been in this area my whole life and you know, I I've I've raised a family and been very responsible, but like I said, I'm like that 20 year old kid again, who's itching to get out there and like see the world. So yeah, I kind of feel like I was divinely called to be here to, to maybe iron out a few different things, you know, like I said, with that bridge and, and with some, uh, some, some bad situations within law enforcement in this area. And I was very fortunate to be put into roles at the right divine timing to, to intervene with some people who really shouldn't have been in the, the roles that they were in with the mindset that they had, you know? Um, but going forward, like, I, I think my, my time here is coming to an end as far as like where my focus all is. Cause it's going to be, you know, everything would live this life is really just taking off pretty well. And I just, I don't even devote that much time to it and it's doing really well. So I just, I see that being my mission and just traveling to see all the major things that I, you know, I, I've had to see on screens my whole life. Cause I've had so many responsibilities here, but um, this area is beautiful as much as I kind of feel like uh, definitely big fish in a small pond kind of thing here. And like, I feel a little, a little caged in sometimes I'm like, it, this place is like where people go on vacation. So I, I got to not complain. This is, this is fantastic. I mean, I sent you videos from when I was on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Hey, I'm like, here's the beautiful ocean of sand. You're like, here's some dead ass grass and some uh, cicadas. Have, yeah, <laughs> and, and cicadas. That's right. We have so many, we picked a couple up and we were just like, oh, and then now we just leave them for the ants. Cause the ants are 
that's their food. But yeah, yeah man, you you have a, a beautiful area in which you exist. And I understand the sort of feeling like you've outgrown it. Uh, we sort of feel like we came here and are healing the land in a certain way. And that you get that feeling of outgrowing it whenever you've gotten to a certain level of healing in conjunction with healing the land or the area that you're in. Like you sort of influence this area to bubble and once that's balanced out, you need to pick up and nomad your ass to something else and amplify it even more and you scale up, right? So is yeah. your next, uh, are you thinking more land after this? I, you know, I'm, I'm not too sure. Like I, the, the ocean has always been my calling and that's where we go. I mean, during the summer, we're down at the ocean in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, like, you know, four to six weeks a summer. And it's just, it's what I absolutely live for. I love it there. And it's just, it's just funny because you have the, the polarities. I think I, I, those basically are the polarities of where I live and where I go on vacation. Like I'm up in the mountains here, you know, in the woods. And then you go to the complete opposite where it's, it's like vacation land out there and you're at the ocean. And it's just, I, I still absolutely love it here. As much as I'd love to travel, I would probably always keep the house that I'm at because I'm way up on top of a mountain. I get to see the sunset every night. And it's like my, my fortress of solitude. I'm a total comic book nerd. So that's like a huge, you know, I know you are too. So <laughs> for this, uh, that's yep. all. If I'm putting TV on, it's one of the cartoon movies, like uh, the DC animated movies. Like I'll just throw that on and then just yeah. edge out for a minute. I don't watch it. It's very rare for me to watch something with human beings in it. Yeah. Uh, and, and for the, just a simple detachment uh, reason for it, I've got to connect you with a friend of mine. She's a veterinarian that lives out by you in that area named Tanya. And she's just awesome. I've already got it noted here. I'm going to connect you to, she's same thing. She was going to go be a, um, Marine biologist just loves the ocean. Absolute huge call. And she's up there in Connecticut. So you guys are like neighbors, you know, anything close to us in Texas is like hours away. Yeah. It's like 15 minutes and you're in three other States. Pretty much. Yeah. Amazing. This town we live in borders. Uh, you, you can go to the spot in our town, Massachusetts, Vermont and New Hampshire all touch. Like it's a mile from my house. So we literally can step in three States in like a second. Yeah. You're just <laughs> string, string and cup, you know, your phone's over to the neighbor. Yeah. So it's amazing, dude. You gotta call somebody and you go, Hey, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so what are you looking forward to with your biggest impact here? Like, what's the thing that you feel that you are going to make the biggest change on and on the biggest level with the breaths that you have? Just getting people to appreciate their lives because there's, I guess that's what I kind of feel like my purpose is and sort of like almost what I'm at battle with right now. If anything, like I, I really try to not approach life as a battle and trying to approach it as more of a dance has always got to be like the leader of the dance and everything. But you know, it's undeniable that there, there are forces out there that are trying to keep the, you know, the human collective, the consciousness down. And, you know, when you look at the Hawkins scale of conscious, I know you've talked about that a lot and stuff like that. And I'm very familiar with it. And, uh, I'm very much conscious of the energy that I bring to every one of my days. And I know that the higher up you are on that scale, you counteract how many, you know, depends on how high up you are and how low they are. You counteract all that negativity by just being raised in your own evolution and vibration and everything else. And it's, it's, it's like the more you bring people along for that ride, the more that's going to spread because they're going to spread that same thing onto other people. So, you know, my biggest goal in life is to just come at every single person and trying to elevate them, whether they're, they're at their lows because they're facing a deadly disease. They've lost everything in their life. They feel like they're at their absolute low. And it's like, I have not been where you are. I've been at a version of where I am. And it's one of the biggest things, uh, the biggest mistakes that a lot of people say is like, oh, I can imagine where you've been, or I've been here and I've been something similar. It's like, we're all going through something different. And it's a tough thing to say, because you immediately shut people down when you do that. Um, but when 
I approach everybody out there in this world with what they're going through and, and, you know, give them hope and give them a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel and say, you know, if you're at your low, you got nowhere to go, but up. And this can just be an amazing story of like what I say five years ago, six years ago, I was in a place where I just, I, I didn't know what was happening. I was having nervous breakdown. Am I not going to make it through this? And, you know, all the times with the cancer and stuff, it's like, things can and, and most likely will get better, especially when, if you're at your lowest, you got nowhere to go, but up. And if you can give people that little bit of hope and, and if anybody can get from a place where I have been those lows that I've been in and come to the place where I am now, where I just like absolutely love life. It's not perfect. I still have a ton of challenges. I'm nowhere near where I want to be. Um, but I still come at life with just the utmost amount of gratitude. And if I can inspire people to get to that same place, it's like, that's, that's the world that I want to live in. That's the world that I want my, my kid to grow up in. You know, it's, that's, that's, I think every, all of us should really be aiming toward in some way, shape or form, but that's my mission. That's my mission is to come at everybody with, uh, with giving them hope. What is your favorite, um, freaky woo woo phenomena? Now we were talking paranormal UFOs, Bigfoot cryptids. If you have a specific cryptid that you like, I'm just curious, like what tickles your fancy when it comes to that kind of thing? Your favorite Bigfoot, hundred yeah. percent Bigfoot, hundred percent because, uh, my father, when he, so he lived out here in Massachusetts with us until I was about 10 and he relocated out to the West coast in Washington state. And I mean, you want to talk about we're in the mouth, the, the, we're in the ant hills out here compared to what's out there. And there is nothingness like hundreds and hundreds of miles of nothingness out there. And it's easy to see how something could actually live there. And I'll tell you, I've always had like a mystique about it, you know, living out there, uh, driving along some of the rural roads, going out to like Mount St. Helens and stuff like that. We'd come across like the legit Bigfoot roadside stands and they were a trip, dude. Like they were something else. Like these people legit were telling stories and they saw something, you know, um, and it's just like to them, it, there's no question, you know, the rest of us have always been, you know, shitting on it for years and criticizing them, calling them quacks and stuff. But, um, you know, I always kind of like, I was intrigued by it, but then looked at it with like a side eye, but less Stroud survivor, man, when he did his Survi survivor, man, Bigfoot, have you ever watched any of those episodes of survivor, man, Bigfoot? No, do do it. Like okay. he's only got 10 of them. They're all on YouTube. Um, he goes at it from a a skeptic's point of view. Cause he was out there the whole time when he was filming. So you're familiar with survivor man though, right? Yeah. 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 So he was out there and he didn't want his show to be about that. Like he wanted his show to be about survivor man, like go out there, one man, just cameras, no camera crew. And he's out there surviving. Well, of course there was a lot of footage that he caught that was left on the cutting room floor that he caught stuff, noises, trees falling. He, he paddle up this, this, you know, long Alaskan Lake for three hours in a canoe and finally get to the spot where no one's at. And he gets there. And as soon as he pulls his canoe up on the shore and he starts to like make himself a little bit of a shelter or a bed, boom, a tree just crashes right near him. And he's hearing things from the woods. And there was a few times, there was one of the times in particular where he had his camera set up and he kept on like standing up and having to look. And he was afraid like a moose or a bear was going to come crashing out right up until the sound of a great ape started like hooping at him from the tree line, like, like sounding literally like a monkey, like, like yelling at him. And he said, it just made his hair stand up on the back of his neck. Like he was freaked out, but he didn't tell that story at all. Cause he didn't want a show to be about that. But then ultimately it came out in an interview, I think like on a podcast or something, they were like, you ever see anything weird out there? He's like, well, actually. So then he, he goes and does, he's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to do survivor man Bigfoot. I'm gonna go out there and, and specifically try to see if I can 
find something, dig something up. Cause I did it by accident. So he goes out there and he's, he's recording stuff and purposely going out there trying to bunk it. Cause he was, he's just a very skeptical dude. And the more the episodes went on, you know, I think he did 10 episodes, like episode one, totally skeptical. Episode two is like, yeah, you know, maybe this one will pan out by like episode eight, nine, and 10. He's, he's all, these things lead to aliens. These things are interdimensional. Like he's, he's, he's totally not questioning at all. If they exist, it's more of a, what are they? Like something is there a hundred percent, but it's, it's not a matter of do they exist? It's what the hell are they? So in this What's that? Isn't that where we all are with it? I mean, yeah. I mean, a lot of people are still like, that's bullshit, but I mean, yeah. But yeah, that's the one that intrigues me the most. And you know, I, I hearing actually there's a um, town right over the border in Vermont that actually had a a little, something happen in their town, probably close to 20 years ago. It it lasted for like uh, three or four weeks, but everybody was having sightings or something, you know, it was like a, not quite a Mothman thing. Everybody was saying like it was like a Vermont Bigfoot, but there's stories of that crap all over the place. So that's the one, not like I've ever seen anything, but you know, that's the one that fascinates me the most where I'd be like, damn, man, I would love to know what the actual truth of the whole thing is. Cause it's just, it goes back, you know, centuries, thousands of years. Like it's just something that's gone on for a long time. And a lot of people are throwing around theories. Like, is it, is it Nephilim? Is it like a leftover Nephilim and stuff like that? Like a lot of, a lot of crazy things. Like it can go anywhere with that story. Is it aliens interdimensional? Like who knows? What's your favorite? A uh, couple of theories on Bigfoot. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm kind of leaning towards that. It's, it's gotta be something that, you know, we, we have like, an, I guess I'd say like an intrinsic, ability to to do some stuff that human beings just maybe forgot about or whatever these things are probably so in tune with like nature we're like the masters of technology and then the masters of the other opposite complete opposite side of that so who knows what they're they're able to tap into and and you know are they are they master camouflagers are they phasing in and out of a dimension that we're in right now you know who knows but i mean something's going on. I mean, yeah, I don't know how an 800 to a thousand pound gigantic thing can, can just disappear. But I mean, I've seen studies where they've had them on, um, thermal cams, like on treetops, like basically going from tree to tree. And it's why people don't see them. Like they've actually got them on thermals and stuff. Like I've, I've seen quite a few things on there and who know, I mean, you gotta take everything with a grain of salt and whether it's real, real or not, but again, it's the what ifs of it. Like it's massively interesting if this is, people dedicate their entire lives, quit their jobs, like go head first into that world because they have that experience. And they were just like, I I can't, my brain won't make sense of it. And until it does, I cannot focus on anything else. Like that, those are the stories that intrigue me the most. Yeah. It's the apprehension of your consciousness. It's the, it's, it shows you something else is going on here and it's just so fucking fascinating. Yeah. You said about it being very nature oriented. I have a buddy of mine. He's sort of a pen pal and he's just a dear friend. I met through the show, but he writes me in these amazing theories. I've said this once before on the show, but uh, I'll tell you now, if you haven't heard it for the audience that hadn't, he, uh, Asher wrote me about Bigfoot specifically and talking about how maybe it was a real entity, but it was so right brain oriented and focused. Like it was purely right brain focused. So therefore it was just kind of a lemming. It was lucky and it just survived via its unabating reality not to because it didn't have a reason to believe that it wouldn't because it was so creative brained. This could also be why it camouflaged. Like if they get scared, they can camouflage up because there's no reason to think that they wouldn't. And they're super creative at being an entity because they don't know how to not. There's no logic to them, like their brain at all. So I find that absolutely fascinating. 
And then just their impact on humanity, what it does, what the idea of it does. Some people, ah, it's absolute bullshit. But some people will really say there's something going on here. And yes, it does have connections to UFOs, to Dogman. I mean, all these amazing casted characters that it seems to like kick about with are just incredible. And I wouldn't take it apart to being just some hominid we haven't found yet. You know, just some creep. Yeah. Maybe there was a ton of stuff like that going on, like pterodactyls flying around and stuff like that until we just sort of moved them all out into the woods by civilization and then or killed them off or something like that or maybe they went into caves underground or something yeah it's i mean uh, one of the other ones that really like this was actually only a story that I've, I've only bumped into in the last like year or so have you ever heard of portlock alaska uh like what happens up there had, uh yes because I, I had um alexander petikoff on and he's the bigfoot dude and yeah. he's talking about this he did an investigation up there yeah, there's a, there's quite a few people that have gone up there and they've all either had some really bad experience, like whatever's up there isn't your, you know, Harry and the Hendersons type thing, like whatever the hell's up there has like twisted human beings into pretzels. And, uh, you know, they had a whole settlement going up there. Like they actually had a fishing community with a cannery and stuff like that. And the entire town packed up in like the 1940s and just left overnight and just ditched the entire town. And it was just because 30 people had gone missing over the course of like six months. Jeez. You guys would go out in the woods to go hunt and never be found again. And they were finding people just literally like, it looked like someone grabbed the hold them by the legs and by the upper part and just twisted them like a pretzel. And they were finding people that way. Oh so, yeah. And I guess they, they abandoned ship in Port Lock and they went like 10 miles south or something like that away and resettled. And ever since then, they've they've been like resettling this area and they've kind of like outgrown that settlement. So like a whole contingent of them was like, why don't you go back up to Portlock and see what's going on up there? We need more space. So they actually did. They took a film crew with them. They had some crazy crap happen. Um, it's in the name of the show is super corny. I almost didn't watch. It was Alaska Killer Bigfoot. And I'm like, that sounds stupid. <laughs> It's actually one of the best documentaries I've seen. You can tell it's a little bit cheeky and acted upon, like a little bit of acting going on just because the guys, you know, they're kind of putting on a show for the camera, but some crazy crap happened while they were there. And um, they pretty much got chased out of there too. Like the way the show ends, like some, they're, they're, they built like the first structure there, like, like put up a 10 by 10 shack and they slept in it overnight. And then the last night they were moving away on the boat. The thing caught on fire as they were driving away. Like Dang the thing no. just went up in flames, like <laughs> just it, crazy show. If you ever get a chance to watch it, it's a pretty intriguing show. Like I said, you can kind of take it with a grain of salt because you can tell some of it's a little bit of a play to the camera kind of thing. But yeah, some crazy stuff going on up in, up in Port Lock and up in Alaska, like just stories like that make me like, yeah, something, something definitely happened up there. This is way before anybody gave a crap about this stuff, about TV shows and unsolved mysteries and, you know, everything that we see now and, uh, you know, something happened up there. What if it's like Nazi experiments um, that where they gave people superpowers and then they sort of broke out and then they just fled over and they're living out in the woods as some sort of super team. And there's like one that can control fire. And so he's like, fuck this shack when everybody leaves you know, <laughs> and they can twist you up, you know, and there's all these sort of Nazi superheroes out there, but they don't want to, they just want to be left alone. Could be. All right. They, We're not ruling it out. <laughs> all I'm saying, we're not ruling it out. Not ruling it out at all. I mean, that's that's kind of it's kind of scary. That's almost scarier that there's some hairy Nazis living in the woods with superpowers. That that's kind of terrifying. Well, this is one of the things that Phil Schneider was talking about. Are you familiar? Does that name ring a bell? He was the no. bases guy in the '90s that yeah. had part of his fingers blown off. Yeah, an alien that shot a plasma beam out. Uh, it was like a firefight underground or something. Yeah, yeah. 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 The Battle of Dulce is what they yep. call it. Yep. Yeah, Dulce, New Mexico. And so allegedly. 
there he was drilling these uh, stacks down and they came upon a huge cavern. But really, again, allegedly, he was talking about a base that's there. And it's all these underground levels. People report crazy things coming out of the, I want to say it's the Archuleta Mesa right there. Yep. So um, the Dulce base, though, allegedly, again, has all these chimeras and all these fucked up beings where they've been splicing in all sorts of DNA and just doing real international waters type shit. You know what I mean? Just real fucked up stuff. And uh, one of the fun theories that's out there is, is that uh, part of Project Bluebeam will be that beasts like run the earth, sort of like hell beasts or something like that. And that they've already got sort of a crew of them down in Dulce base that they're just going to open the doors on and be like smack, smack and sort of hit them in the ass and let them run around and just cause hell. Because could you imagine like actual chimera half man, half beast things and who knows what air quotes they can do or what even they could produce that they did but if it is some sort of physical dna alteration type super soldier program where it's all fucked off you know because and one of the reasons also for this uh, is one of the contentions about roswell is it was sort of a mengala you know again nazis um mengala had created a bunch of um humans that were he did a ton of fucked up experiments on like twins and stuff like this if you yeah yeah that he uh, physically altered them to look like alien beings. And then that was a spy ship that crashed. And so they found things that were reported as small beings, but really it was spy Russian craft, which again, who knows with all this convoluted shit. But whenever you then interject the thought of another human being, another country in this respect, that they were looking to dehumanize by saying, of course, oh, look how fucked up they are. I mean, they're the Nazis. We didn't need any more. Their PR campaign didn't need any more. Yeah. <laughs> right. We know they're fucked up, but and then they're creating these human hybrids of stuff. And then you look at things like Egyptian art where it had, you know, the dog on the human body or the yeah. on the human body. Like, were these real things? Was this a real thing that you can do uh, is alter the avatar in this way? And so then again, you would say, well, if there are these dumbs or these deep underground military bases, which again, anybody out there that hasn't heard the Phil Schneider story, Darcy Weir, a uh, big uh, friend of the show. He's a dear brother of ours. Um, I was in one of his documentaries recently, The Secret Space UFOs, when Darcy has a movie on Phil Schneider called The Underground. It's actually how we met. I watched the movie and was like, who the fuck is this guy? And then reached out to him early in the show. Anyway, so of this, then you could say that there's all these crazy beasts that are actually genetically modified that the government just sort of has on ice and ready for this either Project Bluebeam or maybe a kill switch or something like that. Dead man switch to where like they... I don't know, the whole thing gets overthrown or whatever. And then all of a sudden a light goes on and like they start thawing and these cylinders pop up at us. Something super comic book like you and I want to see, right? And these beasts yeah. around. And because then I want to see the team that comes out to get them. Alaska. Yes. That, that, that's what I want to see. Well, maybe it's the super soldiers out in uh, Port Luck, Alaska, and they're out there training for this invasion. That's inevitable. And they know this. And they're out there. They just want to be left alone. So yeah. they can be mentally ready for the Dulce invasion that's coming up. Totally. <laughs> again you can't rule this out like this is a place of everything that we're talking about here it's unfalsifiable you can't say yeah. that it's not happening any one That's of true. the ridiculously ludicrous things we just talked about absolute possibility in this place and i love this place for it yeah there's so much potential and possibility in everything like that's one thing that i've basically through the last few years like i've ne i don't stand on any standpoint anymore just because i hate being wrong and lately you don't know what the hell who's telling the truth and who's not anymore so it's just kind of like one side will say something right and wrong like so many things can be right together even though they're opposing opposites yeah and it's just it's it's tough because 
so many people that, uh, you know, they, they trust the authorities, they trust people. And I, I've been through that, you know, obviously with my story, you can tell that I've definitely been, you know, uh, trusted people and been let down many times and people, I, they will do whatever they can remain in power and they'll, they'll tell whatever stories can uh, get people to I don't know, either follow them or main, you know, it'll maintain their power. It'll put people in a position uh, of disadvantage. So it's hard to, it's hard to listen to anybody say anything anymore and say like, yes, definitively, that's the way that it is. It's like, could that be true? Absolutely. Could that be true? Absolutely. You know, could, could the guys up in Portlock, Alaska, just be the super soldiers that were made years ago and they're going to wait to take out these frozen monsters that are going to come out of Dolce? Sure. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> Absolutely. Are a that escaped, you know? How do you know I'm not one of them? I know. I mean, how do you know anything is real? What's going on? I'm. I'd be cool with it, man. Again, I'd still vote for you, dude. <laughs> anyway, Heath, we're we're to wrap it here. You and I actually have a really cool panel thing that we're going to be involved in. Yes. Together, and it's five fifty-five on my time right now, which is nice. And we're just going to share that with the audience. Heath Cummings and all the ways to find you located diggity down in the show notes. Cannot thank you enough, dude. A million more of these. Looking forward to all of them, brother. Thank you, man. I appreciate you for having me on. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 